Now entering Nerdist.com. Here we go. Last live Nerdist Writers panels of the year are coming up in October and November. Los Angeles, October 15th at CBS Radford Studio. Uh, with CBS Studio all-star showrunners, including Rob Doherty of Elementary, Aileen Brush McKenna of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Craig Sweeney of Limitless, and our old pal Jenny Snyder-Ehrman, the showrunner of Jane the Virgin. This should be a really fun time. It's hosted at CBS, but you can get tickets. They're really cheap, only $5. Uh, hope you can join us on October 15th. If not, Los Angeles, October 18th at Meltdown, celebrating Hulu's new show, Casual, with director Jason Reitman, uh, who, of course, directed Juno, Young Adults, some other films. Uh, our old friend Liz Tiglar, the creator of Life Unexpected. Uh, and all the folks behind Casual will also be screening episodes you have never seen before. Uh, so join us on the 18th for that, Los Angeles. And finally, Boston, November 14th at Brookline Booksmith with Joe Hill. This was rescheduled from last month. Uh, we're finally going to do this. Uh, Joe is a terrific writer and a great guy. It should be a fun conversation, uh, and that benefits 826 Boston. All the others benefit 826 LA. Hope you can join us. For details, go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. Writerspanel.tumblr.com. That's where I'll put all of the information as well as more information and other stuff. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blacker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I'm also a television writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, uh, DreamWorks, Puss in Boots, and currently FX's new series, Cassius and Clay. This is it. This is how we begin. Good. Why don't you guys, why don't you introduce yourselves for the podcast listeners so they know what your voices sound like? Uh, yeah, I'm Tommy Shlami, and the executive producer and often director of Manhattan. Uh, and I'm Sam Shaw, the uh, executive producer and writer of Manhattan. I'm the, uh, I'm, I'm the younger, more shrill <laughs> two men at this table. You thought it was a little Tommy's lady, the one with gravitas. <laughs> um, we talked last year because I hunted you down, Sam, after watching the show and said, we need to talk about this show. Uh, it was my absolute favorite thing that I saw last year. Oh, man, that's uh, so cool. Really it was it. very, very nice to be hunted down. Thank you for hunting. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, so we've already sort of covered, you know, a lot of how the show began and how you began. Um, but, Tommy, how did you get involved? Because after talking with Sam, clearly your voice is as strong as any in the creation and the look and the feel uh, of this show. So what was your involvement? What drew you to the material initially? Well, um, it uh, was sort of dropped in our office. We have a mutual agent uh, as a writing sample, actually. And uh, the woman who runs the company, who also produces this show, Julie DeJoy, uh, was wise enough to read this script and put it on my desk and say, you need to read it tonight, uh, immediately. And she was absolutely right. And I'm very sort of, I have to say, um, you know, I, I think part of the aging process in this business is... Uh, you know, the bar at two in the morning, it's like there aren't as many beautiful women anymore. Uh, uh, when I was younger, I'd sort of leave with anyone. Uh, but uh, this was a, an incredibly uh, powerful piece of writing for me. Uh, and also, the subject matter of it uh, was really the core of what attracted me to it. Uh, but mostly, truthfully, it was the, first and foremost the writing, you know, Sam's writing. Uh, and it's just something that you start to feel. Um, 
I've sort of used this reference. Actors start to talk about the idea that they'll read a script and they kind of know the next line. They've already started to connect to the character. Well, that's sort of what it felt like to me, and I read it enormously. Uh, for me, I'm dyslexic and a slow reader, so I all of a sudden read it unbelievably fast. So I thought, first of all, I thought it cured my dyslexia. So I thought, <laughs> by the way, maybe, by the way, maybe. Maybe. and if you tune in, any dyslexics, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the audience that I'm sort of looking for right That's now. a promise um, from WGN America. <laughs> but anyway, it was, because it was a period piece, but it spoke to me as a very contemporary piece, and oh, that absolutely. is exactly the thing that drew me to, to wanting to be part of the creation of this show. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I called our mutual agent the next day when I got back into the office, uh, said, can Sam get into my office today or tomorrow? Wow. He did. And I think very quickly, right after that meeting, which was even more enlightening to me and more exciting, um, we partnered up and then went out um, hmm. and tried to sell this thing. That's fantastic. Um, I'm, I want to talk about that writing for a minute. And this is real nuts and boltsy, but... What does your script look like? I mean, it was too long. I'll tell you one thing. It was much too long. It was too long. How so? I mean, like, how long actually was it? Uh, I mean, that draft that you read may have been 70 pages long. It it actually, I don't think it was quite 70 pages, but it was was too long. It was too long. Uh, Because it it had so many rich, big story points Mm -hmm. that... You know, those, those, it's sort of like the Battle of Algiers, you know. Uh, the <laughs> army attacks, it's only one-eighth of a page. But sure. it's going to actually take a little longer than yeah. that. Uh, well, that's a and there was a lot of that in this script. Yeah. There was a lot of description, uh, a world that needed to be created mm-hmm. that you knew needed some time and breathing room. Uh, so it wasn't just, you know, dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. And you, I've obviously shot 70-page scripts uh, uh, in the past, that have just been very dialogue heavy yeah. and, and worked in a, a certain amount of time. That's not what this script was. It also, by the way, was about three different worlds. Do you know? It was this sort of world of uh, the science, the home life, and then the community. Mm-hmm. So it was all of those things had to be kind of created in a, what it became basic cable, a 44-minute mm-hmm. play. That's a lot of information. In Absolutely. And I want to talk about how you start to synthesize that. But one more sure. question go about back to that writing the actual thing. writing. Yeah, yeah. Go back. Well, but I really wanted to, I want to know how you sort of, like, how do you look at that with a director's eye? And it's clearly, it's, it's seeing things that maybe are described in a line or two that you know are going to take for pay, four minutes or whatever it is. Well, you know, uh, it's an incredibly pretentious answer uh, for a what <laughs> I think to be not an incredibly <laughs> pretentious guy, but I, I do read, especially pilots, uh, and I'm not musically inclined necessarily, but I do read it as a piece of music, you know, and I sort of see it as rhythms and where there's a crescendo, where it sort of subsides, where... Um, and so that's sort of how I understand how long something will be. Uh, is almost musically, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, gee, that seems like that scene would take X amount of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a little abstract. It's not something that I can kind of talk to another director and sort of go, here, pick up this script. I think it's a little long. It's just, I think, just inherently, after reading so many scripts, I kind of have this feeling for where I think it now needs to open up because we won't land where we need to get to when the curtain drops. And it's all, to me, about 
where the curtain drops. It has nothing to do with the scene. It has to do with the whole. That's interesting, you know, considering having watched now, whatever it is, 12 episodes of the show, it does feel like a, a piece that moves in movements. You know, it doesn't feel like these very distinct scenes that you might see in other TV shows. It feels like larger movements uh, that, you know, serve a bigger piece. That's, that's really interesting. Um, let's talk about how you start to translate it together. Uh, you took the pitch out together, that's right? We did. We did. We did okay. this dog and pony show. <laughs> yeah, what, what did that dog and pony show look like? <laughs> well, here's what my perception was. A lot of it, it was like... Some, uh, like 16, it was like Mount Rushmore, like 16 people in the room, and then Tommy and I would talk, which I guess is often the case. Um, uh, it, uh, to be quite honest, it wasn't. You, you did a lot of the talking, in the good way. I mean, uh, a really good way. Sam had, look, again, I kind of know that even though I do believe this is an enormous collaboration, and in fact I think I've been lucky enough in my career, um, <clears throat> when you're selling to executives, they want to know that the creator writer of this thing has an idea for where this thing can go besides this pilot. Right. Uh, so I think it was very important for Sam to sort of talk to those people the same way he talked to me the first time we met, mm -hmm. which is why I want to make this show, mm -hmm. not why I want to make this episode, but why I want to make this show. And that is, you know, at that moment, it's still a singular voice. Uh, and one in which I embraced, mm -hmm. so I was sort of there as, by the way, guys, it can happen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can bring this it in on the budget. It yeah. can't. No, I, I, they knew I couldn't do well, that. But there was part of it which is like, we'll get into that. It, it's like when you go out and, and try to rent an apartment. Sometimes you need a guarantor there who says, like, you know, the kid's not going to burn the curtains or whatever. So that <laughs> I was, was part a little of it, bit of a parole officer at that moment. <laughs> um, but it is also true that besides just talking about the sort of um, what the life cycle of the characters might be in the world and the theme and the subject matter and talking about the history and the richness of that, which is sort of like, you know, it's like this natural resource that the show is built on top of. It's this kind of source material. Um, you know, I also think a lot of what we did was talked about what the show would feel like and what it would look mm -hmm. like. And that was really important too to us that it, we weren't going out and pitching a kind of, you know, potted, uh, powdered wig period show. <laughs> it was a show that we really wanted to feel, um, Contemporary. It's a show, show whose subject matter, I think, is really contemporary mm -hmm. um, in a counterintuitive way, and so that was sort of a big part of what we talked about together. Well, let's, I'd like to dig in on that for a minute, um, because there is, there's so much to cover in that pitch, and, and pitching dramas seems impossible to me. Uh, like, not only are you pitching story and character, but, I mean, especially on a show like this, tone and theme is so important, so... What was the stuff? What was the sort of... I mean, it has to be sort of hooky, right? So what was the hooky stuff that you could feed to the listeners that they could latch on to? Hmm. <clears throat> well, it wasn't that hooky, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, look, it was an incredible... Uh, I think the, the biggest thing was as you start to talk about it, and you do even with anyone, people are amazed at the story mm -hmm. and how little they knew about it such a massive moment in American history, in world history, and that the sort of creation of it, the origin story of it, it was always kind of shocking to everybody. And I think Sam always had this way to kind of reference Twilight Zone, you know, so that all of a sudden, it was like a real-life science fiction show. And I think from programmers, 
that made them lean in a little bit. Well, there's like the whiff um, of genre, which is yeah. helpful, <laughs> you know, showing uh, a little leg. And the idea of how contemporary the show could be, mm-hmm. you know, how thematically contemporary was a really important part of the pitch was not... And then I think the other part of the pitch was the big secret of the show, which is what everybody wanted to know, what happens if the bomb gets dropped, and so how many seasons can you mm-hmm. hold out thinking that the end of the show was the dropping of the bomb. And that might be everyone we went to. Oh, everyone assumed that. And so it was like this thing where they figure, you know, well, if, if, if a year uh, elapses over the course of the first season, it's like, you know, whatever, Zeno's paradox, where you have to take smaller and smaller steps. You know, by the end, season six is going to take place over like eight hours or something like that. But it was always part of the conception of the show um, that the dropping of the bomb is really not the end of the story. If mm-hmm. anything, it's sort of the moment in which the story is activated, I think, in mm-hmm. some fundamental way. Um, it's really the end of Act One. <clears throat> that's that's yeah, right. That's an and, that's, and Sam had this kind of sort of three-act concept of how this mm-hmm. bigger picture should go. That's, that's great. Uh, and it's an, it's an interesting thing to see you guys contending with in this second season, head-on, it feels like. I mean, the way the second season starts is you're this many days away from actually dropping them. Right, right. right. Um, was that a conscious decision to answer that question from listeners, or from listeners, from viewers now, who have been watching the first season and thought, uh, maybe I only have eight more episodes of this show? Well, not expressly, not for me at least, but, I mean, it, I think we talked about the last time we sat down and talked about the way we sort of handled the history, and it happened mm-hmm. that... Um, there were some sort of historical parameters that defined some of the storytelling uh, in the first season that had to do with this kind of horse race between two different bomb designs, mm-hmm. sort of odd footnote of the history. Um, in thinking about the second season, uh, we fixated on this really kind of extraordinary piece of the history which involves the detonation of the world's first atomic bomb, the Trinity test. Um, that took place you know, three weeks before the bombs were dropped. And it, um, the more you learn about it, the more dramatic and strange and fascinating it is. There's a, an incredible book about it uh, uh, called uh, uh, The Day the Sun Rose Twice. And the author at some point says, you know, dramatists beware, it would, it would be impossible to manufacture a setting more dramatic than the actual event. And uh, one of our <laughs> history consultants kept reminding me of that. It was like, you know, you guys are fucked. That's great. Um, but that's just to say that the material is fascinating. So, so that became a kind of organizing principle for the season, and that um, in some ways suggested where we would come in and what the shape of the, uh, of the story would be. That's interesting. So it was you and your writers, it was sort of walking back from there and starting to form things around that. And, and obviously we don't want to get too deep mm-hmm. into it because we want people to watch it. Uh, and the execution is really cool. Um, they sent me the first four episodes. And oh, cool. Like, if I wasn't hooked already, I mean, I, I feel like people could even jump in on this season. Uh, I hope they haven't, but <laughs> they could even jump in on this season. I'll go right ahead and, and do it if that's yeah, what you would like jump to in the waterline. Believe me, whatever we can do. But uh, um, that's but it, actually great to hear. It is yeah. its own movie. I mean, that was part of yeah, the thing, too. Is like. that we, and it, it, too, sort of is a three-act story of which those first four episodes are the first act. But, uh, but look, I mean, it's certainly the case... If you're looking at a calendar, um, there's no mistaking the fact that we're very, very close, uh, you know, from the beginning of this season to the end of World War II. And I think that uh, dramatically signals 
the idea. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not like we see the show as an expert, a show with an expiration date and it ends after two seasons. Um, it, I think it signals the fact that um, that we're close to this event horizon. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of it, there's kind of an unknown in some ways for the audience. But to me, I think it's the place where the story becomes most complicated and interesting, where the characters are really put to their most dramatic tests. And sure. Way. Yeah, no, that has to be, that would be fascinating. I hope we get to see that. Um, so do we. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to the beginning. And when, Sam, when you got the call from Tommy saying, can Sam meet today? <laughs> after reading that script, what was your feeling? You know, you must have felt like this was the guy, but well, what was, made him the guy? I was petrified, first <laughs> of all, because I was a huge, I mean, it was a huge, huge West Wing fan. I've, I think I've told Tommy this, and it kind of creeped him out, but <laughs> my now wife, when we were in grad school, and we were sort of figuring out that we were in love with each other and not just right, it was this sort of process, but we'd get together, we'd watch, we'd watch the West Wing, so it was like, Tommy Schlamm is almost like Barry White for us, you know, <laughs> it's, just like, it's, just, uh, it's not entirely true, but, Tom, but you know, but anyway, I, I um, was an enormous, enormous fan, and I actually, the good news for me was that I didn't really know what the meeting was going to be, I thought we were just sitting down to have mm-hmm. a general meeting, and so the fact that it very quickly became a, a more practical conversation about this script that was like this passion project for me. Um, that was a, just a really happy surprise, and I'm glad that it was a surprise because I probably would have been freaked out and, and it would have been a different kind of meeting if I'd gone in yeah. feeling a different kind of pressure. Did um, you have, uh, Tommy, an idea in your head what this show could look like? I did, actually. I, I had, um, um, and that's happened before, and... It's an interesting thing because it was something Sam and I talked about in that meeting. It was a writer that I did not know, but I loved his writing. Truth of it is, is a very similar thing that happened between Aaron and myself for Sports Night. Really? You know, he'd written Sports Night, and it, I had an absolute clear vision of how we should shoot that show, which was different than most half-hour sitcoms. Uh, and it's exactly what I felt about this as an hour drama. You know, I had a couple of things. I mean, I. It, it all seemed like an impossibility, to be honest. Uh, but having done it many times now, that impossibility somehow becomes possible. So, but I, I did know that somehow we had to create a real world, a practical world, and that was the driving force for me. This couldn't be on stages. This couldn't be um, a somewhat, you know. It's actually what you were sort of saying: the sort of sense of the whole that all of these stories sort of have to connect in some way. So it wasn't because of my uh, uh, <laughs> leaning towards the idea of walking and talking. It wasn't <laughs> we'll that at all. That. It yeah. wasn't that at all. It was really about the overall look of this thing. You couldn't feel like the science felt like one thing. Mm-hmm. And, and there were two driving principles, because I have to say, right after I read it, the script, and I thought I knew quite a bit. I mean, I'm a history really buff and I, I read a lot of history and I didn't quite know uh, the, the depth of this story at all mm-hmm. and so even in 24 hours before the meeting started to research a lot more about specifically Los Alamos and realizing that it was both a world of, in transition mm-hmm. and also a prisoner of war camp so it was like how do we create that you know uh, for a, a contemporary audience that thinks they can get information in about three to four minutes that happens across the world, Mm -hmm. you know? So here's something that no one knew about that was massive, and how do we keep that? But 
how I mean I, I, I have to say uh, I read it thinking I can sort of see how this thing can look mm-hmm. I just didn't know who would pay for that sure <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute but, and for those who didn't hear our previous conversation it is an interesting sort of take that you guys had where you you built this camp essentially I mean it feels like the the closest antecedent was precedent was uh, mash more than anything else. Like that felt like a lived-in. Yeah, we're like place. A, a nuclear Gilligan's Island. Is what <laughs> right. Uh, that sort of, and, and it's interesting to hear that you approached it thematically first. It's right. about unifying the stories by giving them all this one place. Um, you are, of course, the guy who invented the walk and talk, and I know you've, you've talked about that quite a bit. But this must have afforded all new possibilities. Well, yeah, and and the truth of it is that. I, people did walk and talk before I started <laughs> shooting that. Uh, Come on. Uh, but uh, that was driven by material. That mm-hmm. was not driven by, I have a uh, really right. exciting way to shoot something. It was, you know, I thought Aaron's words had an urgency to them that would make sense, and especially the White House would be a perfect place, that meetings would happen from one room to the next as opposed to cut to the next meeting, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it came from that, but I also, my own tempo in life is one in which stationary is not my favorite place to be. Uh, And so I have that anyway. Uh, But I I thought what this was not so much about that same concept, but it was about I wanted people to feel like they were put into this world, Mm -hmm. that they weren't put into the fabrication of this world, but the real world. And I also really wanted the actors to feel that. I just knew... You're doing a period piece. It's hard enough to sort of get everybody to sort of back up, back up to what was it like. And, and I didn't want them to be thinking, oh, I have this kind of jargon. Or mm-hmm. If you just think that you're stuck in the desert somewhere, most of your homework is done. Yeah. You know, that you can't wear your nice shoes, that you can't. I mean, a lot of the sort of structural things that an actor will use sometimes has to all be taken away because you open the window there's dust coming in. Yeah. Um, so really it, it, was, it was really for all of us. And the, the only people that didn't get to partake in it was Sam and the writers. <laughs> because <laughs> I was sort of creating this while they were having to write six episodes. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I remember going to the writer's room because I couldn't sell it completely of how I wanted to do it to Sam and everybody because it wasn't economic problems. Mm-hmm. So we had to figure out I didn't want to promise all of this stuff and then go, oh, by the way, what we only have now is a little science room and oh two apartments, you know. Um, <laughs> it would be such a different show. It would be. That's and crazy. so as we started to develop it, but I remember coming in there with like a sort of show and tell, but they had already written four or five episodes right. and going, here's what we have, guys. And it was so exciting for all of us. But for them, who had been writing in a vacuum... Yeah. Well, it's uh, so bizarre. I mean, that's the craziest... It's that, and also, I mean, to say nothing for writing these characters without knowing who's going to say the words, you know, and who they are. And obviously, we had to do some retrofitting there. But, you know, it's not quite true that we weren't... The writers... Obviously, the writers were the beneficiaries, because then the world comes to life in such an incredible way when the scenes are shot. But I also think that it informed the way that we thought about the possibilities of writing the show, having that world. And it's sort of like, I don't know if this is part of the intention in the West Wing, but one thing that I always thought was really interesting about that that tempo of the storytelling where important scenes take place in hallways, it's sort of like 
is almost like a kind of, although the urgency is obviously the antithesis, is almost like a kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead thing, which is um, what happens when the actors are not on stage? You know, what is the what are the scene, right. the scenes that don't ordinarily get dramatized get dramatized? You get to see the yeah. real texture of life, and it, and it happens on the move or by the coffee ma- or whatever, not in these sort of dramatic spaces that are the traditional dramatic spaces where you think of as a setting for scenes in a show about, you know, you know about statesmen or whatever it is. And in and in our show too, because there's this whole world, I think there are a lot of a lot of things we were able to dramatize just in choosing where to put scenes and where to put characters and having um, Abby and Elodie find this space, you know, this sort of bucolic place that they can find together or have two characters having a conversation, you know, back behind, um, you know, a laundry building with a bunch of, uh, you know, but it just sort of, it informed the way you could think about the kinds of interactions the characters were having too. Right, that's really neat. And it's also, I mean, seeing that space and seeing what... Uh, an alive space it is. There's such a jarring difference when you go out into the desert, uh, and that that's a whole other a whole other thing to write towards or for the actors to experience. Well, that was sort of the uh, the other sort of visual motif, which is it's a very it can be a very claustrophobic show, mm-hmm. and I I actually think Oppenheimer was aware of this when mm-hmm. he decided to go to New Mexico, a place that he already knew from childhood, but that you have this thing where you're working in such a small environment and then you step outside and the sky is massive That's and infinite. infinite. And yeah. and you're also dealing with this kind of element of science and you're standing on the edge of what is the most majestic, you know. So, you know, there are... It's just an incredible counterpoint. Mm-hmm. And also, the you know, I think people have described... Central Park is the lungs of New York. Do you know that uh, that's sort of what hmm. the the part of the desert was for these people? That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I want to sort of sidebar here for a minute and talk about. I mean, you mentioned reading Sorkin's dialogue and and realizing the urgency to that and how it suggested a way of shooting. <clears throat> Has that been the case with other uh, showrunners or writers or and shows you've worked on? Where you know you are—it's such an interesting approach to me to telling the story, pulling out those thematic elements or or whatever it is, as a means to visually tell the story. Well, I mean, I've worked with some wonderful people, and uh, I've worked with David Kelly and Jason Kadams, and and yes, the truth of it is, I think I happen to as much as I love actors, I love writers. I really do, and I love really great writing. and part of it was when that happens, it, you know, I'm I'm an interpretive artist. Mm-hmm. I am not, you know, I, I didn't start with a white piece of paper. I didn't. Uh, so it sort of feels like somebody's handing me a blueprint. And when that's a really powerful blueprint, mm-hmm. it, it it's just so much easier. It's mm-hmm. just so much easier. It's more f- threatening because there's so many other ways I can fuck it up. But sure. I have to say... We all feel uh, that, though, with uh, anything. Yes. Uh, reading Manhattan, reading that pilot script was a little bit a very similar experience that I did have to reading Sports Night West Wing on the same night. Hmm. You know, it was sent to me by, again, our mutual agents at that time, Aaron and myself. And I and that's what Julie knew. I mean, she knew. I just found another nugget of gold for you, uh, and I I felt unbelievably fortunate. Wait, but you read Sports Night and West Wing on the same night together. The same night, they were sent to me together, 
And I read these two pilots on a Sunday night. I called Ari Emanuel at, I think it was 11.45 at night, uh, of which I don't even call him during the day when he was my agent, you know. Uh, uh, called him at home and said, I've got to get a meeting immediately. Pretty much exactly what I did. With I would him. be so mad if I read those two pilots by the same person. I'd be like, right? who is this asshole? Well, uh, it was, How uh, can these two And they were amazing. And, so and, good. My, and, and so I met on sports night. Because at that point, West Wing was kind of on hold a little bit because of Lewinsky and NBC. Oh, I didn't realize they were created concurrently. They absolutely. I mean, they were sort of both. You know, I mean, obviously different entities. Imagine had Sports right. Night. John Wells had uh, West Wing. But um, and I've always said this uh, that that a great deal of my career is owed to Bill Clinton getting a blowjob because. Uh, it put West Wing sure. on the back burner <laughs> so Aaron and I could create a relationship on Sports Night, mm-hmm. and then it made it very clear that there was no one else who was going to do West Wing but myself. By the way, that shows the difference between television then and now. Like, now, the president getting a blowjob right. would be... <laughs> would, that you'd like, we that script would line up on the top of the heap and <laughs> put it on the billboard. Exactly. You know, exactly. Um, oh, that's awful. <laughs> Why are we working in this business? Um, when you read someone, uh, like like Sorkin, or like Sam, who, you know, they haven't created a show before. Do you have concerns going into those first meetings? Well, the only concern I have is, why do you want to tell the story? Mm -hmm. Not even, I mean, Sam had it far more laid out. Mm -hmm. Aaron was not sure what the next episode was going to be. But he knew why he wanted, he, he knew the origin of Sports Night, why the language of that world, why those people doing a live show was so exciting to him. Hmm. Uh, but um, it, I actually feel just the opposite. I feel so excited that they haven't done a show before. Uh, unbelievably excited. Hmm. Uh, now, Sam had written pilots before and uh, had worked on a show before, but there's just something about uh, the, you know, look, these using Sam and Aaron also as two people is these people are first and foremost really extraordinary writers so even with a lot of intervention they're going to continue to write what they want to write uh, and the fear that I always have with someone who's been in the business for a while is they've had so much intervention that they just can't help themselves but hear another voice way in the back that's censoring them before they've even had the creative process and freedom to do exactly what it is they want to do. Um, and I think it's uh, specifically with writers. I think that the way, forgetting about the disrespect and the, since the 20s and what writers feel, the level of how notes are handed to writers, how, you know, um, it's, you would never do that to an actor. It's not like an actor does a performance and does a take and then 22 people come to that actor and give that actor a note. Uh, one person gives that actor a note. And now, I could have heard notes from Sam. I could hear notes about that performance, so go talk to the actor. But the actor's not hearing it. You know, a writer gets off those note calls, and it's not just one person. It's like, and then the junior executive saying something, and somebody else is saying, and you just go... But see, Tommy, that's because actors are neurotic and need to be protected, whereas writers are <laughs> Wait, the, picture, the picture of emotional health. Right. right? They're almost identical from my <laughs> point of view. They are. I mean, I, I kind of work with a writer almost identically to the way that mm-hmm. I work with an actor. Uh, almost identically. And uh, uh, 
first and foremost, I want to know what they're trying to get at before I say I didn't get it, you know, or it didn't work for me. Uh, and so, and they're equally as vulnerable. They're exposing themselves in an enormous way. Uh, and I think we think of actors in this sort of community as really exposing this. My God, they're getting in makeup and they're doing everything. So a writer I could just talk to, and it's also a little bit of television, you know, and the conceptual idea of showrunner. And mm-hmm. so I'm, everybody should just talk to that guy and just, or that woman. And it sure. just, it, 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 if you hear it over and over and over and over again for years and years and years, it's very difficult takes a very, very strong personality to sort of go, when I'm writing my pilot, when I'm thinking about this, I'm not going, yeah, but I know what they're going to say here, so why don't I do that? Uh, and you just don't want that to be part of the equation. Yeah, Is, and do you see your job as an executive producer as well as a director in to be helping to protect that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And <laughs> certainly my job as an executive producer, my job of doing television, because I do love really great writing, is to make sure that gets protected, to make sure that, uh, I mean, and that's a little bit easier, I mean, not that someone would listen to me one way or the other, but it is a little bit easier now, you know, to sort of go, look, the the, the little secret that uh, writers sometimes have a hard time is they actually don't have to change anything. Hmm. The, the studio's not going to rewrite it. They're not going to take it and get, well, at least they haven't in the past. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past uh, some, but... You know, you can just finally say no. Now, you might lose your job. You might, uh, and you also, you know, they work on the amygdala. They work on your fear. It's not good. It's not right. It's not good. Well, maybe I should be listening to them. Maybe no one's going to watch my show now. No one's going to care about what I wrote. because, And it takes a lot of, <clears throat> I wrote this for a reason. That's the reason I wrote it, and I want to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can pretty much say no mm-hmm. at any point, you know. And if they, they have partners that sort of support that, um, then I think it's a little easier to walk in with a small army against a very big army, you know. Um, yeah. Did, did you guys run into any of this uh, in the development of Manhattan? I, I will say we had the really good fortune to partner up with studios and a network especially that were really, really supportive of the vision of what the show was. So there was not a lot of, um, I'll say, tampering, mm-hmm. except, um, you know, there certainly were notes and often there were suggestions. They weren't, you know, but, um, but from the network in particular, I will say some of those notes were enormously helpful and really liberating. Um, you know, the, some of the early drafts of the first episode of our show took the story a lot further than we wound up ultimately mm-hmm. taking it. And um, it was a sort of... And I think to a certain extent, that was dictated for me as a writer in writing the piece, which was a sample. It was not just something I hoped would be produced, but it was a sample. Part of it was, it's sort of a, a spec house, a model home that says, here's what the narrative possibilities of the show are, and here's what the relationships between these characters could become. Um, and the network, uh, Matt Jernitz at WGN... Uh, made a call that you never get, which is he called and he said, um, it's fantastic, take some time, let it breathe. If you, if you want to get to that story point in episode three, great. I don't, maybe you'll feel like it comes in episode six. I don't know. Just think about it. Um, and, by, and by the way, that wasn't issued at the point of a gun either. It was just a sort of suggestion, and it was a really, really smart one narratively. But um, no, for the most part, I think our experience has been really good with this particular um, studio network. And of course, by the way, the studio 
and the network don't always know what is in your head when you're the you know creative you know partners behind a show. And so sometimes they'll demand something, and you have to tell them um, you'll get it, but you're not going to get it right now. You might get it in two or three episodes, and there's a reason why you don't get it right now. And it's okay right. to not have every question answered immediately. Um, but I think that's a you know. Um, that's a function of having to remember that um, you know more about what your intentions are than they do, and sometimes you need to share those and help them understand. I'll tell you how perverse it is. In the second season, we, <coughs> that we from creative intervention, almost none. I mean, support. Mm-hmm. They were there. Um, they would have a few things. They would want to know what the stories were to the point where I started to go, shit, we're not hearing from them at all. We're not getting any notes. They must hate the show and just, I mean it's like wait a second be you careful what you wish that, for yeah. this is all I've wanted <laughs> let me go do the show we want to go do and they really did by the way this was um, uh, I can speak from experience this was an incredible uh, and it's part of being away too in New Mexico and we were there shooting mm-hmm. and you know the only real communication was between Sam and the writers and ourselves mm-hmm. on the set. And there was no... I remember one point, we it's not much of a secret, but uh, the, the end of our show, of uh, the season, we actually shoot in film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the, our line producer, who was new this year, went, I guess we should call, you know, to get permission from WGN to see if we could do it. I went, it hadn't even dawned on me that, why? <laughs> we want to shoot it in film. We'll shoot it in film. It'll be within the budget of what they want really us to do. So, uh, um, Why did you shoot it in film? Uh, well, without telling too much of the yeah. story, it's, it's the end of... It, it, you know, we, the, it's clear that the season is taking us to the dropping of Trinity. Uh, and uh, so we felt like the last act, which was an act that takes us to the sort of culmination of what this part of Act One story was. There was something that I don't know if the audience will completely get it. You know, the jump from mm-hmm. high def to shooting in uh, film wouldn't be that dramatic, but it just gave us a feeling of uh, even a more of a rawness and an honesty that mm-hmm. we're sort of pushing for within the show. That's neat. Um, I'm going to go turn off the air conditioning. But okay. I want to ask about uh, casting stuff because you were you were there for that, yes. right? Uh, I want to ask about that, and then putting the story together for the season. So, oh. give me one second. <clears throat> but it's still running, so we can't talk about you, right? This is who is it? The oh, it was the Jerry Lewis Jerry trick. Lewis. <laughs> People will listen to the second half of this when we're not picking up that buzzing. Um, all right, let's talk about casting this show because this cast is unbelievable and it's so many it's funny it's like sort of like Deadwood like there are these great character actors that you've seen for years but have never had the leading role uh, and now they have the leading roles it's really cool how where did this come from what was the process like well, first of all, one of the reasons it could happen was from the question you asked earlier, which was we had enormous support from the studio and the network to cast the show the way we wanted to mm-hmm. cast the show. And not, uh, you know what, could you get us somebody with a, you know, that has some 
visibility or that we can right. get on the cover of some magazine or we can get... And so all they cared about was find the best actors. But that's, you know? that's a risky thing for WGN. I mean, this is incredibly risky. I'm, I'm, honestly, I, I, I'm saying it's this a huge was a... huge tribute to those... Uh, yeah. yeah, and part of it was, you know, a little bit of the tonal idea of the story, mm-hmm. which was it would be great if this wasn't recognizable people. Yeah. If these were, you know, having... You know, cast many shows, having read so many actors, realizing how many gifted actors there are out there that you normally couldn't cast as the lead of your show. And it was always thought of, even though there was a very structural battle between two men at the center of the story, Mm -hmm. it was always thought of as an ensemble show and certainly thought of in the big breadth of, you know, if we're lucky enough to do multiple seasons that this needed a very, very deep bench. Sure. This wasn't a procedural that was the main cop that's going to go out and yeah. get something. So so that was very open to us. Uh, Jeannie Backrack is an extraordinary casting uh, agent. She understood what we were going for, mm-hmm. and she just had, started bringing us... Had either of you worked with her before? Uh, I had worked with her on some reshoots. Uh, okay. We knew each other, you know. But never to cast a show. Much like everyone, I've... <laughs> somehow worked with everyone sure. at some point. Uh, but uh, no, she'd never sort of, certainly a pilot, she'd not cast okay. uh, uh, for me yet. So we were incredibly lucky that she was available. Uh, and I remember one thing that was very cool in the early conversations with Jeannie, she would come in and she would, I remember there were a lot of comic actors that she yeah. was mm-hmm. um, proposing in the early going. And by the way, some of them to me seemed like brain-searingly wrong, you know, just crazy, but it was right. so exciting to that hear she that she was that coming movie. in with a really novel, and by the way, I, I think I was the one who was limited in my thinking, because there is a certain kind of free associative genius that a lot of comic actors have that is, you know, not all that far afield from science genius, you know, it's, hmm. it's, you're, it's a sort of walking to a different rhythm, you know, um, but that was a really exciting thing was that the lists we were putting together were right. not there are these sort of lists that you see year in, year out that are the same sort of like 20 brooding, handsome, you know, <laughs> anti-authoritarian leading men, you know, uh, who could be a cop or a fireman or, you know. Right. <clears throat> also, she was wise enough to know that, and this was me whispering a lot in her ear, even though Sam had written the character as this, <laughs> you know, uh, don't use that as, because... It can, the whole thing can shift. And, you know, truthfully, putting together, I mean, to go back to the music metaphor, putting together an ensemble is uh, putting together an orchestra, you know, that you sort of want to make sure that everybody's playing a somewhat different instrument, you know, rather than the same instrument. And that's also very exciting. So as you, I mean, the, the, the characters begin to shift as you start to Absolutely. cast one person. Now you've cast one person, that's going to inform... If you've cast Abby already, that's going to shift who Charlie might be. Mm-hmm. And once you've cast Charlie, that's going to shift who Frank might be. And so everything was this sort of uh, jigsaw puzzle that's the most sure. exciting thing. And it's a needle in a haystack that that this particular ensemble works as well as it does. I could say, you no, know, we knew what we were doing, and but not until after you've cast it all and you've put it in a table read, and then you get all of these actors together, do you know, is this going to work or not? Uh, well, you didn't say that, but, but look at the shows that you have been a part of. <laughs> I've been very lucky. So I'm, but, but part of that is just trying to find different mm-hmm. rhythms. And a little bit at this point, people who I know are, 
especially this show, mm-hmm. that I knew this was going to take a unique kind of actor, too. Mm-hmm. Not just you're perfect for the role. I'm going to transport you. I'm going to pull you from your home. I'm going to yeah. throw you in the desert. I want you to feel a little bit about the way these scientists must have felt mm-hmm. when they were pulled out of academia. Yeah. And I want you to be excited about that. Mm-hmm. And so that's <laughs> a certain thing that, that if... Well, I've done another show, and it was easy, and I was home by, you know, and I have three kids, and I don't want to be away, and I'm kind of, you know, know, sometimes work can get in the way of your life, you know, but this was like, this was going to be your (laughs) life here, and so that was part of a little bit of it, but, you know, but it's a long process, I mean, we, both of us, and I was ready to pull the trigger on a few people, and Sam wasn't, and thank God, and vice versa, and, you know, it's just a... It's a kind of a long dance that you sort of go through. Some people you find almost immediately, and some people it just takes forever. Was there anyone in that casting process who surprised you or brought something that you didn't expect early on that you started to build that ensemble uh, towards, like you say, that balancing act that you have to do? I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, who was cast first. Yeah, who was early on? Well, uh, I, here's what I think. I, think I know who I Mary saw Lloyd. first. I, first person you saw, and by the way, she was the second person who read for the role, right? Right. It was Rachel Brosnahan, who plays Abby. And Tommy called me this day. It was a day when... Uh, I only came to New York. I came to New York on something <laughs> else, and Jeannie was here, and I said, Jeannie, I mean, Jeannie knew someone here. I said, just put together... I just want to hear it. Right. We, we've gotten an okay. We weren't ready for casting yet. Get me 10 New York actors. Give me a jumping off point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. put them in a room because I just want to hear it. And the second person that came in to read was Rachel. Wow. Tommy wow. called me. I remember right where I was. I, there was this uh, furniture sale, and I had driven out to the, I was in like a bombed out parking lot on the outskirts <laughs> of town, buying a bunch of sofas for our writer's offices and lugging, you know, lugging them back. And part of me is thinking, like, I wonder if John Wells is driving down the highway with a, with a sofa in the back of his, you know, probably not. Uh, but Tommy called and he said, yeah, I saw some people. It's really exciting. You know, and, and I went and I watched and they're just, um, we saw, it was sort of due diligence. And just as Tommy says, you're sort of putting together a puzzle. Mm-hmm. We saw a lot of other Abbeys, but it was right. just clear that Rachel hmm. had something really remarkable. And that, but but actually, Lloyd's- Harry Lloyd may have been the first... The first person contract, who is officially the first contract. <laughs> and by the way, and we've been sort of seeing people for quite a while, so I was so relieved that we'd cast somebody. And I was like, and he's fucking great. We cast somebody who's phenomenal. But that's a great example, too, of when Tommy says, of not being too shackled to your original mm-hmm. conception of who a character is. That, it, it seems crazy to say this now, given the life that this character leads in our show, but Paul Crosley, mm-hmm. the character that Harry Lloyd plays, was not a British guy in the, oh, really? in the script that's originally. A, that's um, a He was... Uh, sort of a son of a bitch, you know. He was, or he's difficult, prickly, and sort of a snob in his way. And, and that was, you know, I remember, because I've I've gone through this a little before. <laughs> American a trick of the trade. actors, yeah. American actors playing that same character, you just don't like. Mm-hmm. As Americans, you hear that British accent. You can be a, you know, a pretentious. You know, you don't have to just be a. Well, I think it's the know, masochist. I, us. As Americans, we want to be judged by by Brits. It's, you know, we deserve it. We deserve it. Yeah, they do it funny. I mean, they honestly, yeah. it's the sort of Peter O'Toole. You know, um, there's an inherent charm to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they just get away with something, thinking, okay, you're just pompous and pretentious. That's, right. that's what you are. Um, let's let's talk a little bit uh, about. Oh, also, uh, just on the uh, casting topic, you guys have William Peterson this year. Right? We do. Yeah. Who 
gives a really great performance. Uh, was he always the guy? You know, what this was. A, this is a really interesting, complicated character, uh, at least as far as I've seen. Uh, was he always the guy, or did you have someone in mind in creating this character? No, we we um, we knew we needed a new military figure in the story this year. We mm-hmm. uh, Mark Moses played uh, a current the the sort of senior military officer Colonel Cox in the show last year, um, and he was fantastic. Um, but he sort of represented a kind of uh, old world um, vision of what the military is and how it functions and how wars are prosecuted. You know, um, he was sort of like the long suffering, uh, you know, school marm almost who has to put up with these um, physicists in this sort of boondoggle town that's been created, two billion dollar town to build this weapon. Um, we, we had this new character who's going to enter the world of the show who in some ways um, agree with his vision or disagree with it. He's a visionary, and he has a perception that um, the whole way that America wields its force around the globe is about to change, and he has very personal convictions that inform the way that he um, does his job. Um, the big thing, which you know Tommy and I talked about quite a bit, is um, we knew we needed to cast somebody who would um, bring a kind of gravitas and history to the role as soon as you see that guy mm-hmm. on screen that would just tell you that there is a new sheriff in town and a force that has to be reckoned with, you know, an immovable force. And um, we were really lucky that uh, that uh, Billy Peterson decided to um, join us. He hadn't done any TV for a really long time, which was very exciting. He's a, a, a theater actor yeah. uh, uh, as well, and is right. a theater that he, you know, that he... Yeah. It's almost the opposite of putting together the original cast. It was like we went to WGN and said, we want somebody. Great if you want to promote them or not. Right. That's not our issue. Our issue is we need somebody that immediately uh, has power. Mm-hmm. You know, immediately has power. Um, and, uh, and he certainly has that. And he's, um, it, it even gets more interesting. Oh, what good. Happens. But he is such an... It, it's such a wonderful piece of storytelling of what he represents as, as a visionary, especially with the conceptual idea that this show is about the start of the atomic you know, age and ushering into a Cold War. Uh, he's our character that sort of tells us there's more to this show than dropping the bomb. Mm-hmm. There's a bigger story to be told. And I'll say, interestingly, it's a very interesting way of playing that power in scenes. Um, mm-hmm. Which is that often he'll he's almost speaks in a whisper, and I remember that at the first table read when we sat down and he was reading uh, you know his introductory scene in the first episode. It was not quite the way that I'd imagined it when I was writing it, but it was really, oh, really? fascinating and really powerful to see it. Oh, that's me. And I will say for anyone who only knows him from CSI, he is a, you know like you say a theater actor, and you get to see him <laughs> do all the acting tricks in in the show. Right. It's really fun. Um, I, I do want to talk about laying out the season, uh, and we can kind of talk in terms of the first season because people have seen it, but this season too, um, not so much what stories to tell, but mm-hmm. how to deploy them. I mean, I'm always curious about these highly serialized, almost soap opera type storytelling modes, and like, when do you pull the trigger on certain story points? How do you formulate satisfying episodes? Uh, within the greater narrative, you know, it's it's a big question. But how does your? It basically comes down to how does your room work? Uh, well, um, 
we sort of threw the kitchen sink at the first season in a way. I had a great writing teacher who said, don't save anything, mm-hmm. you know. Which, by the way, it may not fit. Write it in and then yank <laughs> it out later. Or, but, you know, but, but don't, um, um, don't have a rainy day fund narratively. And so we did. We got to the end of the first season. And, of course, uh, we had ideas about what would happen, you know, the next day when the sun rose on these characters. But, um, but the first thing we did was we sort of took a breath when the, when the first season uh, ended. And then uh, I sat down with uh, Dusty Thomason, who's an executive producer on our show and um, has been my sort of partner in crime in the writer's room. And we sat down with Tommy and we sort of talked through um, what the narrative horizons might be for the second season. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what, what does that entail? And I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting, but yeah. is that about character? Is it about history? Is it about, you know, the, the changing world? What, well, only history, only, only history and theme or that, you know, it's just such a like big word to lug around. Only those things to the extent that they could sort of jog mm-hmm. um, a set of ideas about character. It really was about character um, principally for us. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, part of it in the second season um, for me that was interesting that look when you I think I pimped this documentary the last time we talked and I can't recommend that people watch it enough it's so fascinating there's a movie called The Day After Trinity uh, the documentary about the people who worked on the Manhattan Project and one thing that you sense when you watch it is that no one was exactly the same person on the other side of this experience that they were when they arrived um, and so what Dusty and I began by doing when we talked about this second season was we sort of talked about um, about who the characters were, where we'd taken them, where we thought they were going, and one thing that was exciting to us was the idea that um, you know often on television the rule has been uh, that characters don't change. You know that the sort of um, part of the pleasure and the sort of um, the attractive, seductive lie of television is that, you know, it's a place where everybody knows your name and, and, and you know, Norm will always be greeted when he walks into that bar. And, it, you know, there's sort of a set of physical laws. But, um, but how might these characters actually change over the course of this? Because this, this events are so extreme and so dramatic. And so um, one thing that was very exciting to us is, without saying too much, we take a bunch of these characters in our show, but, you know, particularly look at Fred Frank and John Benjamin Hickey's character, and we take him on a, you know, it's almost like Job. He goes on a real journey and he, um, he um, changes and his point of view changes. I mean, some essential frankness of Frank doesn't change. But, um, but the initial conversations were just about um, where would we like to take these characters? What do we think we've learned about them? What would be exciting to learn about them next? And it was a process, a sort of brainstorming process of... Um, uh, in which no idea was too stupid to be pitched. And, um, you know, so we generated a huge um, uh, amount of sort of story material. And then um, when we finally sat down with our room, there was sort of a period of just talking through a lot of it. Here are some ideas that are really exciting to us. Here are some things that we think are parameter. You know, here, here's a place I think we're going to get to. Here's something. Um, and a lot of those ideas... Um, evolved and became part of the story and some of them fell away and were beaten in the room and um, but there was an aspect of it I mean there were two things that were for us narratively big challenges that made it interesting but there were challenges one was figuring out how to deal with time over the course of the season because we did know in terms of the history um, uh, you know there were some hard and fast mm-hmm. kind of dates that we weren't going to diverge from and um, they defined some parameters in terms of how much time had to elapse over the course of a 10-episode season. And um, so that, uh, and then also, as you say, 
we knew what some big events were going to be over the course of the season, but you want to sort of parse it out. And so it became a process of structuring the season almost like a three-act movie and having a sense of what the kind of um, fundamental turns were going to be over the course of that story. Um, were there... Uh, Frank is, is, again, not to say too much, but Frank is so separate from the, the camp story in those early episodes. And it feels like the show willfully doesn't have a center because he's not around, mm-hmm. uh, which is so jarring in like the most exciting way. Uh, that must have been a huge challenge, though, from a storytelling perspective of like keeping this engine going while having him separated. Um, it was, in a way, that, just as you say, that became part of the drama of the story back at home, which is what fills that vacuum and what are the new, yeah. you know, uh, what are the new power structures that are, emerge and how does everybody reconcile themselves to this absence of this person and also a mystery at the heart of his absence, which is what does it mean that he's gone? Yeah. Um, but it's true, there are times where there's stories that are geographically happening in very different places and they may be thematically related or, but, um... But that felt kind of exciting to us because it's sort of like there's a gravitational potential energy in knowing that your character is separated from this. It's sort of like an odyssey. It's the odyssey, you know? Um, you bring him home in a way and what is that going to look like? And so it, um, there's a kind of story energy, I think, inherent in having, um, having the world thrown out of joint. You know, it's like the Shakespearean thing. The stars are out of alignment and somehow they have to come back into alignment. Yeah. But it's also a great storytelling device to take your center mm-hmm. away and see who's going to fill the vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, or can the vacuum not be filled? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a, you know, so that by the time the center does come back to the show, uh, what does that mean now? Have you been, you know, the, the sort of theory that uh, graveyards are filled with indispensable men, you know, that uh, is he still as important sure. now as he was before he left? In life, if you go away for too long... Is that true? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, uh, I thought it was a, such a great and daring move. I mean, that was something had to happen at the end of season one. I mean, you knew it wasn't just going to start up exactly the way it was, you know. Uh, so I, I thought the writers did a brilliant job in oh, figuring that out. Yeah, it's, it's riveting from the go, and you're just off balance. And uh, Well, it also gave us this opportunity um, to put... Frank and John Benjamin Hickey in a setting that is so far afield from any world that we've explored on this show before, you know, any world that, um, and the modes of storytelling too. I mean, our second episode, that's another thing that was very cool and fun about this second season is that we, um, took some big swings and tried some things structurally and tried some things in terms of the tone and almost genre of the storytelling that are very different. And so, for example, our second episode, um, which I love, uh, is almost a two-hander, a lot of it. I mean, we get some sort of glimpses of life back on the hill, but it sort of explores where Frank is and what's become of him, and it's almost this play um, yeah. and sort of an odd kind of psychological thriller um, between these two men. Um, and that was like a, it was a challenging story for us and a high-wire act for us, but it was really fun to work on because it felt like it was so far out of the vernacular of the storytelling that we've been working on for yeah. a season. Yeah. Um, just to shift gears a little bit, um, on a practical side, while production is going on, uh, what does the day look like for each of you? I mean, you're, you're living out at camp. Uh, well, first of all, I'm not there all the time. I'm not there 100% of the time. But, uh, and part of that is we have, uh, you know, this was a machine that had figured out how to move. So 
uh, a great deal of time. I'm there. I'm shuttling back and forth. Once we were deep into editorial, I wanted to be back here so that I was also working on cuts as well as Sam and Dusty. And, and um, so I, I think most of it, you know, if I'm directing, it's obviously a very right. different thing. If I'm there as a producer-director, um, that day is sort of trying my best to uh, empower the director of that episode, make them feel um, that this is their show, find yourself in this episode, um, and find things you know that we haven't done before. You know, don't again. I, I don't want them to come in with the same sort of uh, uh, challenges that many writers have by thinking, well, I know the executive producers don't like that. They don't like that lens. They don't want this. They don't want that. What we want is you to tell this story, a story that the writers have handed you. Uh, find a way to collaborate and then make it your own. Um, and that's my biggest uh, job for me and the, the biggest job. And also to make sure that if there are real issues with the script or not, that I have a communication and a trust with uh, Sam or whoever the writers are at that moment um, that we can sort of communicate. Uh, you know, we talk a lot, but there are days we don't, you know, there are days that they're writing episodes, you know, the most, a great deal of our conversations are fiscal. Mm-hmm. You know, a great deal of the conversations are, we've already sort of dealt with the script, we dealt with what we want this to be, now it's like we can't quite shoot that scene there, we can't make it in seven days, what do you think about moving that scene to this place? And I think the good thing about having me on the ground, for the most part, is we're not ever doing anything to take a shortcut. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we are doing things that are, unfortunately, the restrictions. So let's figure out, call an audible, and maybe often, and often the case, it turns into something better. Uh, It doesn't necessarily turn into something worse. Uh, It's maybe there's a more economical way to do this story, uh, and if we can figure that out and maybe move something, and the sooner that we can do it, the better off. But that's a big part of our you know, communication, unfortunately, but that's the reality of what we have, which is, uh, especially this season, um, we didn't have it as much last season because (laughs) I was a little more stubborn. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, But as you say, so often these parameters help make a better show. It's it's an interesting thing. Without a doubt. And then there's, look, there are times where where those phone calls are very painful, you know, when you're sort of hold away and you're writing and you know when the phone rings, it means that you're going to have to figure out how to you know, make a, uh, you know, three scenes actually be one scene and take place in this place where we're also shooting, uh, you know, the, the, uh, this other office scene that day. But then there are times where it's actually thrilling, as scary as it is, um, to be, because there are times where you sort of have to call audibles. Remember, there was a night when we had shot a sequence in episode 201, and we were uh, shooting one scene from our second episode, Dan Adias's episode. And it, uh, out of nowhere, and this is sort of the, the, mystery and gift and strangeness of shooting in New Mexico is that like all of those cliches about how if you don't like the weather wait 17 minutes or whatever they're absolutely true so we're shooting and it was suddenly like we were inside of a snow globe it was like the most dramatic blizzard I've ever seen it was like the start of an ice age and we had so we had to stop shooting the scene that we were shooting because it wasn't going to match you know that suddenly there's snow um, and then this scene of Dan's which he had choreographed and had a really clear sense of what it was going to be and it was fantastic that 
wasn't possible under the circumstances. For one thing, it was, we didn't have more limited time. Um, uh, so Tommy handed over the keys to the car, and uh, basically, and, and Dan took over the crew, and we shot this sequence and shot it in this incredible snowstorm, and it became this other thing that wasn't what we thought it was going to be. And it was so much fun. I mean, by the way, <laughs> it would have been less fun for me if I'd had to be directing it, <laughs> right. but it was so much fun from the sidelines and so exciting. To That's be cool. ha- charged with figuring out in a spontaneous way how to make the scene work, and I love the way that yeah. it turned out. Part of my love for, t- I mean, when I was sort of saying my own energy mm-hmm. and my own tempo, it's some of the things that I love most about television is that um, the entropy of it all, you know? I mean, it's filmmaking too, but worst comes to worst, I'll just add three more days to the schedule. We don't have that luxury, right. so we're just trying to always figure out creatively. And you have to trust your instincts. You just have to start to trust your instinct that what we're coming up with right now is uh, both fiscally responsible, uh, but most importantly, creatively kind of exciting, not what we've been talking about for the last three weeks and something else. And I think that's part of, you kind of have to be uh, open to that, both as an actor, as a director, as a writer, to that process, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's an enormously creative process uh, and exciting when it works. Yeah, and listen, you guys, it's it's working. You're doing really good uh, stuff. Uh, I, I hope people will will check it out. Um, so the season two premiere is October thirteenth. October thirteenth. Is that right? Okay, on WGN America. Tuesday night on WGN America is. At what time? <laughs> Who cares anymore? Yeah. <laughs> Why does that matter? Yeah. Very <laughs> <He's> accurate. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Uh, I believe 9 p.m. Yeah. I'd watch it. Let's just say nine. Sure. Yeah. Um, and is season one available somewhere for people to watch? Also, is it like on any streaming service? They are. Know there is. Um, iTunes. You can. Sure. That's not a streaming, but you can purchase it on mm-hmm. iTunes. You can get it on Hulu Plus, uh-huh. okay. as well as Amazon. I think. I believe uh, so. It, uh, it might be now. Not we're on, on Blu-ray. Amazon. May not be, but we're on Blu-ray. And then uh, WGN is actually going to marathon the uh, entire first season. Um, leading up to this weekend I should know exactly when it is that's right Uh, awesome well people should watch it if they haven't we'll end as we always do by asking you guys um, starting with Sam what are you 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 have a baby you don't have time to watch TV are you watching anything Uh, have you seen any movies Yo Gabba Gabba I have a two year old at home as well yeah uh, Mr. Rogers neighborhood Uh, uh, does the two year old watch Mr. Rogers I wondered if kids still watched it here's the deal Uh, we, we you know we had these lofty aspirations not to be the parents who medicate your child with a screen when, like, <laughs> you know, when it's the big kid apocalypse in your apartment. <laughs> right. But there are times where you just need a dose of Mr. Rogers' Sesame Street. The amazing thing is, it still works. Absolutely. Still, something about that that uh, sweater vest or whatever. No, the cardigan that just is, I don't know what it is, but it just soothes the savage <laughs> beast. Uh, and are you and your wife watching anything uh, on your own? Ask Tommy and then come back to me. Oh, right. uh, no, I will say this. Uh, no, I will, sorry, sorry. Here's my, my yeah. answer is um, we, we did. We watched a couple things recently. We watched Mr. Robot mm-hmm. and completely loved it. We thought it was really fat just because it felt so fresh. It felt so, um, and it had such an incredible high aesthetic. We just, I, I loved Mr. Robot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's the biggest. And then we also watched Unreal. The, um, Love Unreal. Uh, which, it, both of those shows, by the way, I mean, it's a cool thing about this time. This is the case for us on WGN America, which is a network that people don't really know and may mm-hmm. not have associations with, positive or negative, or they may associate it with the Cubs. Um, but, you know, Unreal's on Lifetime. I, I'd never tuned nope. in to watch a Lifetime show before. Um, 
uh, I, I had, didn't watch Mr. a ton of USA. Well, the yeah. end, I don't watch and a ton of USA, USA, but Mr. Robot's on USA, and it just it just is a reminder that um, uh, you never know where um, where the next great show is going to yeah. come from. Absolutely. Um, I have to say, there, there's um, I, you know I'm a news junkie, so mm. um, when I mean when we're in the middle of the season, I'm not watching anything, but I will try to watch news all the time, and I, I do watch. I absolutely love Chris Hayes. I just think he's... I, I do. I think he's extraordinary. Um, but um, I tell you, the show that I just I just binged, and there's only six episodes, was Catastrophe. Oh, I love it. It was... I, it just was a breath of fresh air, and it was so well done. And I think, besides the fact that I think the two of them were incredible, she's amazing, and she created the show. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, they both did, but uh, I think she's now doing... The sh- so show with Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, is she? she created Divorce, I think, for HBO. I think she's a phenomenal talent. I also think, I don't know the director who did that, but I'm trying to search him out because I thought he did an amazing job on all of it. But I, I just really, uh, I, I, there are a couple of episodes that were unbelievable. It has this naturalness to it. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like it feels like, this feels like the future of sitcoms, of half hour comedies. That Well, that's what it felt like to me. He figured out a way, look, <clears throat> the sort of modern family docu, right. you know, mm-hmm. style, I think was created a great deal because in 22 minutes, how much story can you tell? So it's a lot better to just all of a sudden have a character say, here's the next exposition yeah. that An you exposition need to know. And it was a brilliant way Absolutely. to sort of, and from the office on, it became the kind of way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. This was so cinematic. This was so, mm-hmm. uh, this could have been directed by... You know, Sidney Pollock, if yeah. he was going to do a half hour. It just felt That's a great so album. honest and right. And, but it was also the writing, them. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I just had such a TV crush on her. Uh, <laughs> I just thought she was just great. Uh, but So that's yeah. sort of the, the one thing that I... I will say, it, it, it often is spoken about in the same sentence as Sports Night. You know, that uh, felt like a show which was... The, the feel of it was so ahead of its time. There were not half-hour comedies that looked or felt like that. Uh, and so you, you are in part responsible for cat- catastrophe. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take that. But uh, I only wish. But uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for being here. This was really fun. Okay, uh, can't so wait much. to see the rest of the new season. So great. Congratulations to you both. Great. Thanks, thanks man. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Thank <laughs> you.